You are listening to Melbourne Lights Church Weekly Podcast. Good morning. You guys awake this morning? You sound exceptionally quiet. It could just be that my ears are blocked, but uh, let me encourage you to wake yourself up in the Lord. Yeah? We're not spectators. There, there was like three amens to that, and everyone else was like, I'm just going to stay and labor on it until you guys wake up. We're going to push in. Um, I love the opportunity with Coach. I love the opportunity to outreach. Um, you know, in the church, we would use the word discipleship. Obviously, it's not just in the church, so they use the word mentorship um, because discipleship doesn't necessarily translate. But what you get to do is the opportunity to disciple somebody, to mentor them, and to share the gospel. And you're allowed to share the gospel, which is really exciting. So don't, don't, uh, don't hold back. If you want more information, talk to Gabby. Um, would you open your Bibles with me to James chapter 5? Before we get into James, um, just want to, want to let you know, Elodie and I and the boys are going to be on holiday for the next four weeks. Um, we will absolutely miss you, um, but we will also enjoy having a holiday and getting away. Um, we always miss you when we're away, but can I, can I ask you, please pray for us. Uh, pray, uh, yeah, we'd have a great time and we'd be able to relax, but also please continue to pursue Jesus and passionately go after his presence. I love hearing the testimonies when we come back from holiday of what God's done while we're away. Um, and so things don't stop. It's not shut off time. It's run forward time. So we're in the book of James. This is our last week in the book of James. We've been preaching through this. James is a book about faith, about maturing, and about the maturing of our faith. You there? Have you found it? Good. Um, someone said, why are we moving so fast through James? You could take 15 weeks and preach this, which is true. We could take 15 weeks. Um, there's so much gold in here. But I also think it's good to keep a big view of context and of themes. And it's also good for all of us to have something to go away with and study and to dig into ourselves. I mean, we could go through it verse by verse, but I think there's a challenge for us that when we're preaching through something, that if there's something that we, you know, we don't get time to get into, that you actually go away and dig into it yourself. Because we're not here to be spectators for a, a, a preach that tickles our ears. We're here to go, okay, let's unpack the Word of God. Let's respond to the Word of God. And if there's things that, you know, that kind of grab our attention or things that we need to respond to or things that we didn't have time to get into, that during the week we can go away and unpack that ourselves. Because ultimately... You should be feeding yourself every day. If we're living Sunday to Sunday, we're missing the point of James, which is maturity and faith that matures. So keep digging, keep unpacking what God's saying. We've seen that James chapter 1, really quick overview, talks about faith that's mature and how, uh, how we face trials and hardship will either strengthen our faith or hinder our faith. James chapter 2 is about the fruit of our faith or the practical outworking of being with Jesus. James chapter 3 talks about the power of our words, that what comes out of our mouths is an indication of what's in our hearts. Think about that for a little while. I think some of us skimmed over that week, and we still need to come back and respond to that week again. What comes out of your mouth is an indication of what's in your heart. James chapter 4 looks at the contrast between focusing on self and on our own desires and our own pleasure or focusing on what honors God, advances his kingdom, and brings him glory. 
Are we actually doing what God says, or are we living for ourselves and what we think is best? Are we actually listening to what God says and putting it into place in our life, are we making our, or are we making our own decisions and asking God to bless what we've already decided to do? For those who are newer at Melbourne Lights, welcome. We're glad that you're newer at Melbourne Lights. But if you haven't realized it yet, we're not a comfortable church. We have this joke about the seats, okay? Because they're not the most comfortable seats. And every now and then, we think about getting like those nice big padded seats. And then Elodie says, no, but the seats are a prophetic picture of who God's called us to be. We're not here just to settle down and just enjoy the comfort. We're here to be slightly uncomfortable so that we change and go. So that's a joke about the seats. But it's true. We're not a comfortable church because God hasn't called us to just sit and be comfortable. He's called us to live on mission. We don't believe that the church we see modeled in the Bible is a place where we come once a week to hear a feel-good talk, but continue to do our own sinful, selfish things. Or Or where we come, but we just keep doing our own thing. We don't want to be a people, please hear this, who are never challenged to be free. We don't want to be a people who are never challenged to be free or who, uh, you know, who, who don't become more like Jesus. We want to be a people who honor his presence and who live on mission and walk in freedom. And when stuff comes up in our lives, we're honest about it and we get set free so that we can live on mission and become more like Jesus. We call each other up to more in Christ. The Bible doesn't allow us to play games. And too much of the Western church has only picked the feel-good stuff out of the Bible, and we never challenge people because it's actually become about comfort. Jesus is loving and he's gracious enough to not allow us to stay in the place of selfishness and brokenness. So when we preach through a book like James, there's some challenges for us. It's not the easiest book to preach to. There's some challenges. But James calls us to more, to maturity, to fruitfulness. And if we'll hear the voice of God through this series, we'll grow and mature. James chapter 5 has three parts to it. The first two parts, they sort of echo, um, they, they echo and conclude the thoughts that James starts in chapter 1 about the rich and the poor. If you remember chapter 1, if you, if you weren't here, you can go listen to the podcast. But if you remember in chapter 1, James says this, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, both situations test our faith because they challenge us to take our eyes off of Jesus and look either to ourselves or to the world's systems for our provision. So how we deal with money or our lack of money is one of the biggest tests of our hearts and our faith. Jesus spends 25% of his time talking about money. Yet so often we don't like to touch on that. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on to say this in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, we all know we need money, 
We all know that, like, that, that that's, that's part of the thing is we ha- you have to work so you get some money so you can buy groceries and you can pay the bills. But you can't serve money and you can't worship money. Money's there to serve and help us to worship God. So James says this from chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, we're going to read verse 1 to 6. He's a bit harsh on the people who are rich, and then he's going to talk about those who don't have money. So he says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, thanks a lot, James. Your riches have rotted and your garments are, mouth eat, uh, are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Woo! Okay. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Uh, he does not resist you. Basically, that, that last line is uh, the righteous person. The Lord does not resist you. He's addressing the heart issue as well as a practical reality, the actual action actions of those who are getting rich at the expense of the poor, who are using or exploiting the poor for their own gain. This is the exact opposite of what we just read Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. Direct, use your, your wealth and your riches to direct your heart toward God. Use your wealth to advance the kingdom, to help those in need, to direct your heart toward God and to those that he's added you to. But some of the believers in James's time were laying up treasures here on earth. They were exploiting the poor. They were focusing on themselves. And if we focus on our own desires and our own pleasures, which is actually what James was talking about last week, if that's our first thought, you know, what I want, what looks best in my eyes, then we're in danger of falling into this same trap. And James warns of three things. The first thing is this, the materialistic accumulation of wealth. We live in one of the most materialistic societies known to history. Materialism is this, the tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. It's an earthly focus. It's, it's a self-focused view of our possessions and wealth. It's about how can I use all this stuff, even my spirituality, so that I get ahead in life so that ultimately I'm comfortable and I have what I want. Now, there's nothing wrong with going shopping, but, but, but you see this so evidently if you go on Saturday to Fountain Gate or Chadson or Eastland, and literally, the people are spending all of their time, the, the, everything that they've got during the week from working, they're going out because the sum total of the life is to then go buy something so that I feel better about myself. What a sad existence. I'm not saying you can't go shopping and you can't go buy stuff, but if that's all that you exist for is to have more, we totally missed the point of life. So he says... He's warning against materialistic accumulation of wealth. He's warning against defrauding their workers. Against using people to accumulate more wealth and possessions rather than using our wealth and possessions to love, care, and reach people. And he's warning against being self-indulgent, being self-focused. 
thinking of myself first. We saw in James 4 that we should, what we should be doing is using our wealth and our possessions and the things that God's given us, the, the, the things he's asked us to steward, to, uh, to the things that honor God, that advance his kingdom, that bring him glory. How, we, how do we shift this view of wealth and possessions uh, in our lives? Because if you're honest, we're all faced with this. If you think that doesn't apply to me, then you're lying to yourself this morning and ask God to break through that lie and set you free because every one of us faces this in our society. How do we shift this view of wealth and possessions? Because even if we don't have it, so often we think, if only I had it, I'd be more happy. How do we shift it? Firstly, we recognize that everything that we have comes from the Lord and is for his glory. Everything you have, everything you have. We remind ourselves. How do we remind ourselves that everything we have comes from the Lord and is for his glory? By bringing our tithe into the storehouse. Because when we do that, the Bible says that it breaks the hold that money and possessions have on our lives and over our thinking. When do we do that? Every time we get increase. Why? Because every time we get something, we're tempted again to go, this is what it's all about. It tries to take our focus off of Jesus and onto this thing as our Savior. So every time we get increase, whether it's pay, whether it's a blessing, whether it's a gift, whether, whatever that increase is, we bring tie to the storehouse because it breaks that thing in our life. We go, no, 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 this is from you, Lord. It acknowledges that God's our provider in every area. It directs our hearts toward God. It says uh, that, that um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It directs our heart to the people God's added to us. You know, the, the, the very first, I'm going to get in trouble, but the very first thing, I can tell you who's going to leave the church about six months before they leave. You know why? Because they start withholding rather than giving. They stop directing their heart. Now, I try not to look at that because I try not to treat people any differently. But I guarantee, because the first thing that we do is we go, I'm not directing my heart toward these people anymore. It shifts us when we bring our tithe, shifts us to a kingdom view of wealth and possessions. And then we give offerings, and then we live generously, and we bless others. And actually, here's the thing. We should be asking God how he wants us to use all of our wealth and our possessions. Everything that we have. Actually, in a place of relationship, we should be saying, God, you've given me everything. God, how do you want me to use everything? We like to make it simply simple and just go, here's the 10%. I've ticked the box. Woo, I get the other 90. And you do. Yeah, it's like jet ski, boat. I want a new car. I want to, like, in reality, and, I, and you know, I'm not saying that things are bad. Please hear me. I'm not angry. I'm just saying this is the reality. This is where the rubber hits the road on this stuff. This is who James is writing to. In reality, we should be saying to God, everything that you've given me, how do you want me to use it? God, how do you want me to use my house if I have a house? God, how do you want me to use my time? God, how do you want me to use my car? Is there some way that you want me to use it for the kingdom? God, do you want me to give more? God, do you want me to bless that person? God, you know, if there's extra, God, how do you want me to use it? And sometimes he might say, I want you to use it for yourself. I want you to take your, your family on a holiday. I want you to invest into something. And sometimes he might say, I want you to give it away. 
If we only ever hear, use it on yourself, buy your stuff, go on a holiday, and we never hear, give it away, then maybe we're listening, though, to ourselves and not to God. See, the Bible tells us clearly how to use some of our wealth. But he wants us in relationship to ask him about all of it. In our life. The Bible tells us clearly how to live in certain areas of our life. But Jesus wants us to ask him about all of it. The point is always relationship. Whether it's with money or our time or our focus or our affections or our emotions. It's always, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And that, when he speaks, it it doesn't contradict what he's already told us. So he says, I've told you to do this. But what I want you to do is ask me about everything. With our finances, I've told you to do this. Bring tithes, give offerings, live generously. But what I actually want is relationship. So I want you to ask me about all of it. Then James goes on to again address the poor, those who are not wealthy. And he says this from verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits... For the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly and the late rains. Sorry, the early and the late rains. Excuse me. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you might not fall under condemnation. How do we do that? See, how do we live when we're facing lack or hardship or suffering or being mistreated? So James writes to those who are wealthy and mistreating others and using their wealth for themselves. And then he goes, but actually there's a whole lot who are not wealthy, who are facing lack and hardship and suffering and being mistreated. How do we live in that place? He says this, be patient. We wait with patient endurance. This is not my favorite point. I'm not the most patient person. And it's one of those things, it's it's one of the fruits of the Spirit that I ask God to help develop in my life. Help make me a patient man. (laughs) Quickly. (laughs) Thank you, Craig. See, one of the biggest temptations when I'm not seeing the breakthrough is to begin to take things into my own hands. But James says when... We're facing hardship and lack and suffering and being mistreated. How do we do it? By waiting patiently. David is a great example of this. David was anointed king, but it was 20 years until he sat on the throne. How many of us are willing to wait 20 years? And you go, oh, well, David didn't have a choice. Actually, I'm going to show you that he did. David had the opportunity to kill Saul. He had the opportunity to kill him. Saul was the king and to take the throne. And 
Saul comes into this cave that David and his men are hiding in. And David's men wanted to kill Saul. And they even say, they say this to him um, in, in one of the Samuels 24 verse 2. I think it's, is it first or second Samuel? Someone tell me. He says this, and then you can tell me. Um, he says, here is, uh, the, the, the men say to David, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemies into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. The men are saying this, first Samuel, there you go, thank you. Uh, the men are saying this, this is the day that the Lord's given to you. Go kill him. And David wouldn't kill him. This is what David says to Saul afterwards in 1 Samuel 24, verse, uh, verse 10 to 11. He says, behold this day, so he, he, he doesn't kill him, and then he talks to him. Behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, he's talking to Saul, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you, hurt, though you hunt my life and take it. Here's the thing that blows my mind. He refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed, but he's already himself been anointed to become king. But he still refuses to refer to, to Saul by anything other than the Lord's anointed. See, David understood the timing of God. He patiently waited for God's timing, even though others said, the Lord said. How we act in the time between the promise and the fulfillment, whether it's weeks, months, years, decades, between the now and the not yet, can determine whether the promise is fulfilled at all. I believe that even though he was anointed, if David had taken things into his own hands and killed Saul, God may have removed the anointing from his life and he may never have been king. The promise of God is like a placeholder for the future. It's not, a, it, it, it's, it's not always a guarantee of that future because we have a partnership to play in relationship with him. So how do we wait? We wait patiently. How long do we wait? He says this, until the coming of the Lord. What? No, no, give me a timing, God. Like, like I'll wait a couple of weeks. Give me two to three weeks. I'm happy with that. No, no, he says, wait until the coming of the Lord. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, we look forward with patient anticipation to the coming of the Lord because it's all about him. We're pilgrims passing through this land. This is not our home. This is not our, our place. He, he is our shelter. He is our hope. He is our rescuer. He is our refuge. We look forward to the coming of the Lord. So in the time between the now and the not yet, we wait patiently and we look forward to Jesus' return. We say, even if I don't see the fulfillment in my lifetime, Lord, I look forward to your return. You are enough. We wait without grumbling, he says. See, it's very easy to begin to grumble in the waiting. Nobody grumbles in the blessing. We grumble in the waiting. 
we begin to be, we begin to grumble against God or against His perceived lack of action. We begin to grumble against others in the church who we think have it easier or have more than us, or who we think have seen the fulfillment of God's promises while we're still waiting. This is what James is writing to. This is the very practical. He's writing to those who are rich and saying, you're not better because you're rich. And he's writing to those who are poor and saying, you're not less than because you're poor. And he's saying, don't grumble against each other. We have a part to play in the kingdom. And then he says, wait in unity. We can't allow the waiting to cause disunity. Psalm 133, verse 1 to 3 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head. It talks about anointing. This is the anointing of God running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's not just a little bit. It's an overflow of, of anointing. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded blessing, life forevermore. Where? The place of unity. The blessing and the anointing of the Lord flows from the place of unity. Don't allow the waiting or the blessing in others' lives to cause you to begin to grumble or to cause disunity in your heart. Because when we begin to do that, the anointing and the blessing of the Lord ceases. It dries up. Think about that. Placeholder promise. We're waiting patiently. Eyes fixed upon the Lord. If we begin to grumble, because it's not happening in my time, if we begin to grumble because it's not happening the way I want it to happen or the way I see it, then it actually causes the anointing and the blessing of the Lord to dry up in my life. Rather than to flow. Let's read on. James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18. Is anyone amongst you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Woo. Oh. Is anyone among you sick? Why do we sing? I'm getting excited. I'm going to go on the tangent. Why do we sing? Because the Bible tells us to. If you have a problem with singing, get over it. The Bible says make a joyful noise. You don't have to be good at it. You just have to do it. If anyone is cheerful, sing praise. If you come and you can stand through a half an hour of us singing about Jesus and not actually open your mouth, there's something wrong with your heart. Can I just say that? If you can stand in a meeting where we're singing about Jesus, if we're singing about ourselves, that's fine. You do what you want. If you're going to see a band and you don't want to sing along, that's cool. But if we're singing to Jesus about who he is and you are comfortable not joining in, there's something wrong with your heart. Is anyone amongst you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. What a great scripture. Elijah was a man of, of, uh, with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. That's a long time. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We could get into this whole thing about this, like, prayer. It says to pray for yourselves and 
call the elders and to get others to pray. But I want to look at the point of the big chunk of the scripture. It says, in whatever situation we find ourselves in, our response is prayer and praise. Is your response to whatever situation, whether it's plenty or it's lack, whether you're seeing breakthrough or you're waiting for the breakthrough, is your response prayer and praise? We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. That, that there, there is a response of our hearts to the situation around us. And it's both. It's prayer and it's praise. When we don't have this heart attitude and this love for others, it can cause disunity. This, this rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It, it, it causes disunity when we can't actually be happy for somebody else's success. Or we can't actually sit in that place and go, you know, I, I feel the pain that you're in and I weep with you. David in the Psalms says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And there's this shift from the place of weeping to beginning to see the greatness of God into a place of praise. Pray for yourself. Pray for one another. If you find yourself frust frustrated with somebody, grumbling, viewing them differently than how the Lord views them, what is our response? Pray for them. Not go talk to four other people about what you're angry with them about. Not have a coffee with one of the elders and be like, I just think you should know. No, that's not how the Bible says to do it. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for one another. When we pray, we get the heart of God for that person in that situation. Why do we pray first? Because we want to have God's heart. Remember, he comes back to relationship. That I spend time with, with the lover of my soul. I spend time with the creator. And I get God's heart for them and for myself. Because sometimes the problem isn't them. Sometimes the problem is my heart. Sometimes I need to go to God in prayer because I actually need to allow him to change my heart. We, everyone's quiet because we go to God in prayer and we're like, oh, God, change them and help them see their sin and they're so broken. And God's like, hello. Oof. If you're suffering, pray. If you're sick, pray. Pray fervently. Pray with others. Call the elders to pray. I, I don't think it's like the, you only have to call the elders because like they're the only ones who can heal. That's not what he's saying. He's saying pray for yourself, call the elders, pray with others. It's just like call whoever you can. Uh, the, the reality is that the elders of a church should be people who are full of faith and who are spending time with the Holy Spirit, who, can, who hear God. So it's like, you know, if, you're, if you keep hitting your head against the wall, then call them because they, the, the, it's the elders of a local church who have to give account for you. So they, they better pray. But to be honest, all of us sh better pray. It shouldn't just be elders. For those of you that don't know, this local church, our eldership team is Elodie and myself, Mark and Louise, Dave and Gabby, Olaf and Leanna, Leanna's standing up there, and Paul and Monica. Um, 
I'm sure there, are, there has been others at times, because I don't think it's like, it's not like until death do you part, it's the seasons. Um, and there will be others in the future. But one of the things is that this team, God's it's not over. God has entrusted us to direct this church toward Jesus. And so there is a, something about when we're added to a local church that actually we can go, I can follow, because Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So if I can't follow and imitate the faith of those who God's called to lead the church and give account for us, then this isn't the church for you. Can just be honest? And if you don't know us, then this isn't the church for you until you get to know us. So it can be a place where you're in for a while until you get to know us, and you need to hear God, is he adding you here? See, being added to church is not just sit in a church on a Sunday morning and then do my own life. It's being hearts knit together with people so that we pursue Jesus together and we live on mission together. And in this local context, we're the ones that God's called right now. Sorry, not sorry. It just is what it is. Like, people are like, who are you to lead the church? I don't know. God called me. I, I don't know why. There is better people to lead this team than me. But God's called me for this season, and while he's called me, I'm going to do it. So while God's called me and he hasn't said stop, you can't lead this team. And when God says stop, I will very happily step aside, and I have offered a couple times over the 15 years. Um, and God said no, and the rest of the team, thankfully, also said no. I just said, I'm, I, I, I don't know why I'm on this weird tangent, but I just want you to hear it. That I will never, I'm not, this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. I will not fight for it. If this eldership team said, said, Matt, we don't want you to leave the church anymore, I would gladly, I would be sad, but I would gladly lay it down because it's not mine. I wouldn't fight for it. I wouldn't post against them on social media. You, I would just say someone else is going to have to lead. And if God's told me that I still have to lead something, I'd go start something else. And it wouldn't be right next door. I don't know why I'm saying that. I'm just saying that calling the elders to pray is a good thing. Because <laughs> the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Call somebody to pray. Call anybody. Somebody, anybody, everybody, pray. If you're cheerful, if you've received breakthrough, if you've seen God's provision in your life, if you've seen God's provision in somebody else's life, Praise. In the valley, praise. Give him the glory and the honor in every situation. Our response is always prayer and praise. And I'm finishing right here with verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone amongst you wanders from the truth and somebody brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wow. In all of this, Rich or poor, waiting or seeing breakthrough, facing plenty or lack, whether we're, 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 we're living on mission or somebody's wondering, our goal is always restoration. Our goal is always that people would be restored to relationship with Jesus and relationship with others. Whether it's we go out on the street and we're, we're preaching the gospel to people who don't know Jesus yet. The goal is that they're restored to relationship because that's what they're created for. But even if it's somebody who's been in the church who wanders away from the truth, the goal is always restoration to Jesus and to others. 
that we would live in unity, that the unity of the faith and the unity of the believers would be seen. James is writing to the church. And he says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, what does that mean? That some will wander from the truth. We like to, we like to get weird with it and be like, like, well, they must not have been saved. I mean, James says, if anyone amongst you, amongst the church, amongst the believers, wanders from the truth, how do you wander from the truth? Because we get deceived, because we get distracted, because we begin to focus on ourselves rather than on Jesus, or on our wealth rather than on him as the provider, for whatever other reason. But our goal, if somebody's in that place, is restoration. And, but, but hear this, especially those who are overly, uh, not overly, who are who are pastorally gifted as like your main strength. Sometimes you have to let people go so that hopefully we can bring them back and that their soul will be saved from death. Sometimes in our love, we actually can short circuit the working of God in somebody's life And we want to see them restored and come back. We can short circuit the working of God in people's lives if we don't trust the timing of God and what he's doing. So just as we, as we have to have patient endurance in our own lives, we have to patiently endure in prayer and trust the work of God in other people's lives who have wandered from the truth. It doesn't mean forget about them. It doesn't mean stop praying. It means patiently endure in prayer. Keep bringing them before the Lord. It's one of the hardest things to do in a church community. But it's always with the goal that they be restored to relationship with Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning? I've gone a bit long, but it's my last preach for four weeks, so you got to give me some grace. Please. Sorry, not sorry. Whether we're rich or poor, waiting or receiving, standing in prayer or celebrating in praise, there is a challenge for us this morning. Whatever situation we find ourselves in. Because James starts in James chapter 1. He says, don't just be hearers of the word and not doing it, deceiving yourself. He starts, James, with if you hear it and you're not doing it, then put it into practice. Otherwise, you open yourself up for deception. And I actually felt like part of uh, uh, Louise shared a, a picture that Gabby had in our prayer time. And let me share it with you. Had a picture of people like, have you ever seen like in a movie where someone gets kidnapped and they put like a black bag over their head so they can't see where they're going? She felt like there was some people this morning and you had like a black bag over your head. It was actually the deception of the enemy and it was stopping you from seeing what he wanted to do and responding to his truth. And I felt like for some this morning, it's actually been your lack of response to the truth of God, that's, you've actually put the bag on your own head. And he wants to bring freedom this morning. How do you need to respond? Do you need to change your view of wealth and possessions and how you use them? Do you need the presence of God to help you with patience? to trust the timing of the Lord? Do you need to pause, wait, reassess today? Or has the waiting caused you to begin to grumble? 
and begin to sow disunity. Do we need to continue to pray and to stand with others in prayer or to praise and give God glory and celebrate what He is doing? Or is there a restoration that's needed? Whatever it is, let's take a moment and respond to Jesus. I often say this to people, I can't make you respond. It's up to you. And if you do, there's amazing freedom. And if you don't, there's other consequences. So Lord, we respond to you. We thank you for your presence in this place. Lord, I pray right now, Lord, that where we've been blinded, Lord, even like a bag put on our head, Lord, whether it's by the the work of the enemy or we've put it on ourselves, Lord, we've deceived ourselves by not responding. Lord, would you take that off right now? Would clarity come in Jesus' name? Would breakthrough come? Lord, we want to hear your voice. Lord, we want to see you. King of kings and Lord of lords, we want to see you, Lord. Let us see you, Lord. Let us be undone by who you are. But this is not about the name of a church. This is not about a movement. This is about you. This is about Jesus Christ. This is about us knowing you and becoming more like you. And we want to be those who respond. So whatever area you're challenging us in this morning, Lord, we choose to say yes to you. Can you do that in your own voice? Whatever the area that God's challenging you in, would you say, yes, I want to respond to you. Lord, help me this morning. Help me to respond to you. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If you have any questions or would like more information, please contact us at melbournelightschurch.com.au.